Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. Your well-being, your wealth is very intertwined and dependent on other people's well-being. That is the philosophy that also drives us because we cannot be isolated from the well-being of the children in South Africa or other kids on the continent for that matter. That's Precious Malloy Matsepe. She's a South African philanthropist, businesswoman, doctor, and human rights advocate who was also recently elected chancellor of the University of Cape Town. As co-founder and co-chair of the Matsepe Foundation, the good doctor has pledged more than 50 million U.S. dollars to help alleviate COVID-related challenges on the continent. She spoke recently with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman Mike Milken. Precious, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Mike, for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Over the years we've spent together, I can't tell you how much your passion for your fellow human being has struck me and your mission in life. And particularly during this period of the COVID crisis, your family's response to the conditions in Africa has been uplifting to all of us. Well, thank you very much. I can say the same for yourself, Mike. You lead a formidable organization, collaborations in various areas, including health, and your leadership is truly commendable. You were born in Soweto, Africa, one year after Nelson Mandela was in prison. What was it like to grow up in that part of South Africa? And what were the steps that motivated you to take an aggressive path in education? I was born in Soweto, one of the poorer communities in South Africa, a township that is now popularly known worldwide because that's where Mandela also lived. I grew up in a family of five kids and my father was a teacher and my mom a nurse at one of the biggest hospitals actually on the African continent. We were a very close family. Our parents brought us up on Christian values and held up education as a very important commodity that we could have acquired to get out of the poverty cycle in Soweto. And so I went to school and it was a school that really tried to give us the best education given the circumstances. I think one of the people that influenced me as a child outside my beloved parents is the headmaster at my primary school in Soweto. Her name was Mrs. Wesley. From there, we moved on to a boarding school in Rustenburg, which is about an hour out of Johannesburg. This was a Catholic school, and they offered for most of us some of the best education. And it was a difficult, difficult system because you had to be away from home. Studying there, the hard work, the discipline was inculcated in me even from that early stage. I must have been now at 10 when I was at this boarding school because I recall that we had no electricity. The school was in the middle of a forest and the nuns had to switch the electric powers off at about seven o'clock and we all went to bed to save power. And the only place I could find a light was in the bathrooms. So I would go there, sit on the floor and study. I think that was an early development of my hunger for knowledge and just hard work and discipline. I was fortunate and got a scholarship to go to Vets University, which is one of the best universities in South Africa, currently working with Oxford to test the coronavirus vaccine that we're developing, one of the vaccines. So I studied medicine at this college. My parents then could only afford so much to 
see me through varsity. And it was really through the help of some of the local doctors, community people, friends of my parents that helped to pay my education. And I was really determined then to make sure that their investment in me doesn't really go to waste. I was really determined to finish my medical degree. One of the things that has drawn us together has been this quest for knowledge. Yes. And the quest for equality and the quest for opportunities for children and adults in Africa. Mm -hmm. And I'm in a book club right now with my seven-year-old granddaughter, my eight-year-old granddaughter, and my eight-year-old grandson. We are studying the Wayside School. And it was very interesting in one of the chapters where some people came in and asked for their valuables, and they didn't have any valuables. But one child told them that he's going to give them a book, and it's far more valuable than anything they will find in the school because knowledge is more valuable. Hearing your story and that of others of education leading to freedom, relationships. And if I remember correctly, you met your husband, Patrice, in college. Is that true? That's correct. Patrice and I, yes, met at Wits University. He was studying law and I studied uh, medicine. What drove me to study medicine were two things. Firstly, it was a personal tragedy. I lost my grandmother to a preventable illness that could have been managed. She died of kidney failure as a result of hypertension, which was not detected, which was not treated. And my mom tells me that when we left hospital, and I was maybe 10 years old at that time, and I said to her that I was going to study medicine and I was going to make sure that people do not suffer unnecessarily from preventable diseases. But the other reason that drove me was because growing up in Soweto again, I noticed how we seemed to have people that seem to have access to good health care, education, all the good things in life and all the social indicators of well-being that was easy for them to access. There was another group that just did not have access to those. So I went into medicine as a conduit to try and correct that wrong, see what I could do to correct that inequality. When I was at this with Patrice, it was still during the apartheid state. We were trained as doctors and were not allowed to work in white hospitals. And so that led us to be exposed to certain specific types of diseases, whereas our other colleagues were exposed to all diseases that affected all of South Africans. There was a lot of social injustice right through even when we were at varsity. Patrice and I laugh when we tell the children that we were not even participating in sports at school at adversity because we were only accommodated as far as the academics were concerned. But on the social side, interacting with students, getting that holistic type of exposure to an institution of higher learning was not possible because of the apartheid system. But again, I was very lucky in life that I met a partner who was very committed, very hardworking, and our values were very much aligned. In the United States, we are not only dealing with the coronavirus, but we are dealing with the reawakening of the inequalities. I had financed a man named Dr. Ernie Bates, and he had gone to a school, Johns Hopkins, and he was one of the first African-Americans to graduate Mm -hmm. from the school, but they had segregated wards when he graduated. So similar to yourself, 
he went to the University of Rochester to go to medical school so that he could work in a non-segregated environment. And later, uh, he became a neurosurgeon and founded a company called American Shared Hospital Supply. But later in life, he became the vice chairman of the board of trustees of Johns Hopkins. So in many ways, the system that you were born into, and we still had remnants decades ago here in the United States. And my father told me that my children wouldn't have a good life unless all children felt they had a chance at the American dream and that we can all succeed based on our ability, not where we were born, not who our parents were, not what our religion is, and not matter a man or a woman, but this dream that existed. And it really has driven my life to think about that. Then just the realization that what my father told me was not just for the United States, but for the world. How far has South Africa come since you were born under apartheid? And how far does it have to go? I know your boys are still relatively young, but what will the world look like when you have a granddaughter? How would her world look different than your world? That's an exciting question, Mike. And (laughs) that is probably what drives us to continue to do the work that we do to ensure that the world we leave behind for our grandchildren is a better one. But to go back to the American dream and that your well-being, your wealth is very intertwined and dependent on other people's well-being and survival is crucial. That is the philosophy that also drives us because we know that our children's well-being cannot be isolated from the well-being of the other children in South Africa or other kids on the continent for that matter. If I look back how far South Africa has come from the time I was a young girl, it has come quite a long way. It really has. When I grew up in Soweto, we had no electricity in my home. Now, most of Soweto has electricity. Most of the rural communities have electricity. When I was young, we did not have some form of a national health insurance plan. And when Mandela became president, he made it possible for women, pregnant women, nursing mothers and children under the age of six, he made sure that healthcare is free and accessible to them. Many households now have running water and toilets within their homes. My eldest son, who is now 31, finished his first degree. He studied at Wirtz University, where Patrice and I studied. And his class was totally different from our class. In my class, there were six black students in a class of 100 to 150. And in his class, it's now 80% black students. So that was a major shift from the time I went to school. When I was young, there was a lot of local industries and people produced to supply locally and create jobs locally. And with globalization, obviously all that change and supply change, supply chains were just became global. And interestingly, now with COVID-19, we seem to be moving again in reverse. Globalization seems to have been shaken a lot by the pandemic. And then, of course, 
The other big change has been technology. Teaching itself has changed so much. Now with COVID-19, we're seeing more modes of education using online learning as well as class-based systems. So there's been a total change in education, in health, in the economy from the time when I was a young girl to now. And my granddaughter or grandson hopefully will be in a world where technology is accessible to a majority of the people. That's going to be the new divide. That's going to be the new thing that causes inequality in terms of incomes in societies. For the poor people that are not able to have access to technology, they will be left behind. I'm hoping that when my grandchildren are here, that issues around equality, access, and social justice we will have sorted out because I think that's what we're going through right now. You cannot have one group of people that have access of everything, whereas the other group of people dying from poverty, malnutrition, it's just a very imbalanced world. You agreed to become the chancellor of the University of Cape Town, one of the most beautiful cities in the world and a great university. You took this position of leadership And then all of a sudden, the coronavirus hit. What are the challenges at the university? How have the students responded? So it's interesting. We talked about my youth and then being where I am now as the next chancellor of a university. As a child, if you told me that I would be chancellor of the best university on the continent, that was just not even something I could wrap my head around at that age, given South Africa where it was in the apartheid era, where UCT was not even accessible to black students. We had planned to have my installation at UCT earlier in March. Those plans had to change as we realized that the spread was coming onto South Africa. I think when I spoke to you in March, we must have had 900 cases of coronavirus. We're now sitting close to half a million cases of coronavirus, people that have tested positive. So we had to totally change. We didn't have that installation because of fear. We would not be able to have social distancing. We were not ready for the virus. And immediately thereafter, we had to decide to send students back home. It was just a quick decision. People had to vacate the university and be sent home. Now, you must remember that some of these students come from rural communities in KwaZulu-Natal, which is quite a distance from South Africa, from Cape Town. Johannesburg, some come from Zimbabwe, our neighboring countries also have a lot of students that come to study at UCT. So we had to make plans to have these students sent back home. And what it did also to show us clearly the inequality that existed in our society. For instance, the students who went back home to rural communities have no electricity still. When we talk about social distancing, it's not a possibility. That's a luxury because of the spaces that they live in. When we talk about hand sanitization, there's no running water, so that's not even possible. Let alone studying, having a decent place to study where they could then continue their studies. That was just a challenge. So we organized transport, obviously, got the students home, and then the university had to quickly 
move on to online learning. And of course, students from wealthier families can afford laptops. There is infrastructure to support internet connectivity. But for poor students, it was still paper-based learning because they have no access to technology. And this is where our family foundation got involved, where we collaborated with universities, organized for students to have laptops, collaborated with some of our service providers to ensure that students have data for their work. It's been a very, very stressful situation to try and manage, make sure that people are kept healthy and safe, ensure that the project of education still continues to try and save the year. And then, of course, there was the mental stress where people were losing jobs, parents are losing jobs, students not worrying about failing the academic year. And all those stresses made us realize that there was a need to address the issues of mental health in the community in general. So we hosted about five webinars where we spoke about mental health issues. As you know, South Africa is known to have a high incidence of gender-based violence. So we had to also go in there and just make sure that we help people to deal with their issues, bring in holistic kind of well-being, not just focus on the academic. It's been quite challenging and it really called for solidarity from all sectors of society, from business, from ordinary people, from government. We, we've just been working together and I guess this is one positive thing that we've never seen collaborations at such high levels and with so much compassion and determination to work on this coronavirus. So the leadership in Sub-Saharan Africa kind of began with the Motsepi Foundation that you had founded many years before. And Precious, as you've pointed out, during these periods of extreme difficulty, during a pandemic, those at the lowest end of the socioeconomic mm -hmm. ladder are most affected. So you made a public announcement early that your foundation is going to respond to these challenges. How did your children respond when you and your husband, Patrice, made that announcement? Our boys are now 31 24 and 18. And they've grown up watching us being involved with philanthropy all these years. One of my favorite projects is where we distribute about 200,000 toys to the children in our community. We've been doing this over the years and it's something we do with the children. When we told them what we thought we were going to do in response to COVID, there was a generally a feeling amongst the three boys that it was the right thing to do because they also understand we can't be living in a world where we can afford most things that we need, especially health, whereas uh, our fellow brothers and sisters out there do not have access to the things that we have. The commitment we made went primarily into providing PPEs for healthcare professionals and all the first responders, as well as ensuring that there was water and sanitation for people in rural communities who do not have water. We also worked hard to help with the distribution of technology as in laptops and data to university students. And in high schools and primary schools long term, we have projects that help with infrastructure where we build classrooms, laboratories, libraries for students in these schools. 
but also we look at the sports side to ensure that the children have a holistic outlook to life. We build their soft skills through sports, through music. Our continuous commitment to development is what really drives our work in South Africa, on the continent and globally. So precious, when I think of Africa with more than 50 countries and the path of South Africa and how it's developed over the past decades, it's totally different. And maybe the difference was a leader in Mandela. Both you and Patrice and your family have not limited your efforts just to South Africa, but have taken leadership on the continent. What are the keys that you look for? Is it government leadership? How do you interact with other leaders from other countries? Africa is a very special continent. And South Africa is really fortunate that it has world-class infrastructure, financial systems, health. It is what you can find anywhere in the world. So it has been a leading economy as South Africans. We have a duty to ensure that as we develop, so does the rest of the continent. One thing that really binds us together is the commitment we have in developing the youth of this continent. In the next 10 years, Africa will probably have the biggest population of young people entering the job market. And we have a duty to make sure that they are properly skilled, they are well-educated, they can contribute towards economic development of countries where we are. That is a commitment that we have to the children of this continent. Now, you spoke about Mandela and the leadership that he provided to make sure that South Africa turned out to be the way it is. He was a true visionary. He was a leader with lots of integrity, courage. He had compassion. He was probably the foremost philanthropist who did not have lots and lots of money like most philanthropists have. But he used his stature, his agency for the benefit of his countrymen and for the world. One thing that he did for South Africa, which really led us in the path that we went, was that he truly believed in equality. He believed in non-racism. He believed that Black and white South Africans had a right to live side by side in South Africa. He believed in uniting all of us. So he is a leader that we look to when we think about how we can help South Africa and the rest of the continent to continue on this trajectory of development as a people, how we can really reach the development that our people deserve. Patrice and I are very fortunate in that we've been part of the world economy for 20 years or something. We meet a lot of leaders through various plat platforms. We have met President Kagame at the Milken Institute. We share in his vision. His belief in developing his people is something that we believe strongly in. We have built enough trust amongst leaders on the continent who have realized that our work is really focused on helping individuals on the ground. That's where our interest is, helping communities, helping individuals, children particularly, and women on the continent. Because when we help individuals, they will ensure that their communities thrive and nations thrive. So our interactions with leaders across the board, religious organizations, traditional leaders, heads of states, is a relationship of trust, 
where the ultimate goal is to ensure a social, economic, political upliftment of the people on the continent. As we have focused so much on the world's largest investors, more and more of them have focused on ESG, the environment, the social governance issues. What will we have learned from what's occurred here that will change how we deal in the future? One of the collaborations we have with you that excite me a lot is the Capital Markets Program. Because through that program, you're taking young people from the continent who have the capacity to learn more about capital markets from exposure in the States, and you're bringing them back to Africa to help be part of their governments. We've seen how some of the states on the continent have failed because of mismanagement or just lack of knowledge of how to raise funds outside, how to manage those, and what to invest in. So that program is very special. The issue of ESG is very important. Patrice and I also have been involved with investments in new energies because that's also another big area, particularly on the continent, looking for entrepreneurs, businesses that use the newer forms of energy so that we can help move the continent away from the types of the fossil fuels and all the other forms of energy that has polluted our environment. And I think from the customer's point of view, people also want to know that companies they're buying from care about the issues that they care about, about climate change, about how people are treated, labor in companies, that they are not just used to work in sweatshops that kill people. So customers and consumers have become very aware and are putting their money behind companies that are environmentally friendly, care about social issues, and their investments actually makes a difference in the world. When we made the commitment to purchasing PPEs, we also tried to make sure that along the supply chains, women-owned businesses also are part of providing these PPEs to make sure that small businesses also benefit from philanthropic dollar and to ensure that they remain sustainable. So we are looking at the issue of ESG from the private sector perspective, but also in where we are investing the philanthropic dollar. The Milken Institute IFC program that you spoke about, our goal was can we create one thousand financial experts that are patriotic to their countries, are willing to go back and work in their country for their government. And you saw the opportunity to bring them together from 40 different countries. They will change the world and figuring out how to leverage with the need to create hundreds of millions of jobs. We are particularly excited about the new Mozepi Prize, where we can challenge entrepreneurs throughout Africa to build new businesses, new opportunities, and create jobs from them. I just want to thank you for being a symbol of the American dream. This young girl from Soweto, who today is the chancellor of a university she could not even attend, is a symbol to all young girls of the opportunity in front of them, not just in South Africa, but in the entire world. So thank you and all the best. Thanks, Mike. Thank you very much. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time. 
Stay safe and healthy.